Everything you need is already inside of you. The world would not be what it is without you. When we begin to create change within us, we begin to create change in the world around us. Your journey to becoming your best self as the whole person starts right now. Welcome to the Rise Up For You podcast. I'm your host, Georgia Close. Thank you so much for joining us today. This podcast is here to serve you and to stand alongside you in your journey to becoming your best self. Through speaking with industry experts, authors, and amazing individuals throughout the world, we have a message to share, and so do they. We're bringing you empowerment, inspiration, and strategies that you can instantly implement. Our focus is on the whole person, and research shows that the happiest people in the world The most fulfilled countries in the world are the ones that make time to nurture and build their relationships, money, self-worth, career, love life, and health. When we feel great within us as a whole person, then and only then can we create positive change around us. Well, today it is my pleasure to have Andy and Al on the show with us. And we're going to be talking about a lot of interesting things, um, mostly relating to career and relationships, uh, not only between women and the workplace, but you know, women and women, as well as women and their husbands, because we all know what starts in the workplace, we bring it all home. So I am so honored to have you both on the show with me as a wonderful married couple. And I always like to start off by letting our audience get to know you guys. So in a few words of your own, could you just tell us about yourself, um, whatever good details you want to share and what you guys do? Well, I'll start. I'm Andy and um, I'm a a lawyer by day and a, a feminist and advocate for women in the workplace. Uh, the rest of the time. Uh, I've been uh, work, writing, speaking, thinking about the issues of women uh, succeeding in the workplace for uh, many, many years and uh, found that uh, the workplace makes it very difficult for women to be able to realize their dreams at work. And so that's what brought me to uh, this stage in, um, in, in my career. Awesome. And I'm Al. Uh, I'm also a lawyer. Uh, I've been practicing uh, longer than Andy has. Uh, so I think about myself as a somewhat uh, older lawyer but also as a very proud father, we have a daughter who's uh, now a medical doctor practicing in Boston. Mm. And that's a very large part of our past life if it isn't as much a part of our lives as we would like it now. Meaning she's too busy for her to <laughs> hang around with us as much as we'd like. So, so I'm a lawyer, I'm a father, and... Since, oh, probably the last 15 years, Andy and I have been trying together to do something about improving women's opportunities to advance in careers. Wow. 
So for the last 15 years, you guys have been working on this uh, initiative together. Yep, together, and me before that. So. Wow. That's I was late to that particular party. <laughs> it sounds like both of you were plenty busy. <laughs> yeah, better late than never. <laughs> well, did you have... Um, Gosh, there's so many questions I could ask you because it seems so daunting and almost impossible to have um, a life with, you know, mom and dad being lawyers and parents and <laughs> just being busy, you know, and I know you guys are in Chicago and that's a busy city as well. But um, what was there this moment or realization that you had where you just both went, you know what? we've got to do this. We want to work on this initiative specifically and we want to do it together. I would say yes. Um, when, um, when I first started practicing, I was at Al's firm, a tiny little firm is when it started. It grew to a, a mid-sized, big, bigger firm. Uh, but they couldn't have cared if you were purple polka dotted. If you did a good job, everybody wanted you on their projects. Mm. And then I joined a big law firm where what I learned was that... Big means way over a thousand. Okay, that's good to know. Qualifies as big, yes. And um, what, what I found was that because people don't know you, they start to rely on the stereotypes that they have about people... Oh, women, men, leaders, mothers, fathers, parents. Uh, and so they would put you into these buckets based on uh, characteristics that could have absolutely nothing to do with who you really were and the, the work that you could do and bring to, uh, you know, uh, bring to the table. And so that was sort of when I realized that uh, there is a a different way in which the way women and men are treated and have opportunities in the workplace. So Mm. that was um, sort of an eye-opener for me, and uh, it grew from there. Um, I I would say that that was probably the, the, that's probably when I got radicalized. Oh, wow. Okay. Probably, oh, five, seven years ago. Andy came to me and said, I've been speaking, I've been writing articles, and I've got a book in me, but I don't have a book in me all by myself. There needs to be a male voice in this narrative, and I want it to be yours. Will you write this book with me? And that's when we started to write Breaking Through Bias. And we found that Uh, We had already written probably 100, 150 articles on professional topics together, but we found that writing together about gender, about gender issues, we could, we thought, and we still think, bring something unique and different to the entire conversation. Because not surprisingly, but very disappointedly, uh, there just aren't very many men in this conversation. Yeah, I know. I When you started talking about that, um, Andy, how you brought it to Al and said, hey, I think it's important to have a male voice in this. I just thought, oh my goodness, I've not really heard that before in regards to you know women's issues or things like that. And um, wow, that is really quite honoring. 
Well, it, um, uh, I, I certainly think I couldn't have done it myself. And I think the two of us um, feel that the work product is, is better because the two of us have worked on it. But the importance of having men in the conversation cannot be emphasized enough. And the reason for that is that as women, we could talk to ourselves all day long about what's wrong with the workplace (laughs) and what's wrong with the stereotypes and the biases. But unfortunately, we're not the ones who are driving the train. In most organizations, it's men that are in control. And if we don't get them to see that there's an issue, that there's a problem, that they need to be part of the solution, then unfortunately, we're just going to be talking to ourselves and we're going to be saying the same thing 20 years from now. And that's just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's so wise. Well, I, I, yeah, Andy, I hear your moment that you were talking about when you said, you know, you were working and realizing that all of a sudden there were these biases. And I'm sure, you know, being married to Al, you brought that home and discussed it. But Al, was there a time when you realized that just for yourself? That there were these, you know, gender biases going on? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Andy mentioned that she started a little firm that I had started. Uh, when she came, I think she was our seventh lawyer. Mm. Uh, we eventually grew to be about 125 before we merged into a much larger firm. But sometime before that merger... Uh, Well, let me start at the beginning. When we started, as Andy said, I thought we were the cat's meow in terms of being bias-free, that we were about as cool as any four male partners could be in terms of thinking that men, women, whites, blacks, straights, gays, whoever it was, was going to get a fair shake with us. Hmm. And as we grew, there came a time for me, probably, uh, I hate to date myself, but probably (laughs) almost 40 years after we started that firm. Wow. When I looked around and I looked at us and I said, hey, we aren't any more diverse at the top than anybody else. We haven't brought women into our senior leadership any more than any of these big biased places have. What's wrong with us? And that was my aha moment. That was my time of realizing that well-intentioned people, people that think they are Doing the right thing, fair, unbiased, unprejudiced, are susceptible to these kinds of implicit biases just as much as everyone else. And it was then that I sort of said to myself, hey, look at yourself. You've got to do something different, and you've got to let other people know that they do too. Wow. Yeah. And were you able... I don't know, how, how active were you at that point in the, uh, in the company? In the well, I was, I was on the management committee. I was on the compensation committee. Uh, we made a little progress, but it wasn't long after that before we merged, and I 
uh, ceased involvement with management so that my efforts have really been directed since then mm. to talking, writing, speaking, and consulting uh, other companies about how to do it because I've thought a lot about it and think we have a lot of ideas about how to make things better. Actually, and, and that's a great question right there for f- that I have for you guys is, I mean, when you realize, when you do have that moment where you go, hey, we had the best of intentions, but without thinking about it, we're kind of all the same. How do you go about fixing that or not because it's not necessarily broken I I guess I mean well, maybe your law firm is very successful but yeah, I'll, how do say, you do I'll that? say one thing to that which you because you've just touched on something that's really very important sure. which is that um, not 80 to 90 percent of women think that there's a problem at work for them that they're that the stereotypes and the biases about women and men hold women back hmm. 15 to 20 percent, maybe 30 percent of men even think there's a problem at all. And so if you don't think there's a problem, then there's nothing to fix. Right. <laughs> and so you, you're at a, women are at a disadvantage automatically. So hmm. that means that the first step in all of these fixes has to be education, has to be getting men to recognize their own biases, getting them to recognize that there is a problem, that women have a significantly harder time advancing in their careers than men do. And that's not an easy sell, but it needs to be done. Now, that being said, once that comes about, it's not easy after that point either. Because you can't just tell people, okay, you've recognized that there's a bias in the workplace. Just end it. Stop it. (laughs) Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. That isn't the way that bias works. Bias is like an optical illusion. We see Mm. things one way, even though we know that they're a different way. We can be told over and over and over again and think we believe that women are just as ambitious, just as competent, just as competitive as men. But when we look at women on a piece of paper and we look at men, we automatically think the men are aggressive, uh, decisive, Mm. able to take charge, and we think that the women are kind and nice and caregiving. And (laughs) we think that the men are going to be the leaders and the women are going to be the helpers. And so we have to overcome that. And education is the first step. And then preventing people's biases from influencing the career choices of men and women is really the next step. Oh, okay. I love this. Yeah, this is right in line with what we do. This is great. So step two, how, I mean, do you, how do you even begin that conversation inside a firm at the management level? Well, uh, you come with concrete proposals. Hmm. It doesn't, so I said, you're not going to stop bias by saying stop bias. Right. So we need policies, practices, procedures that prevent 
the decision makers from allowing their subjective judgments to influence their uh, career affecting decisions. There are a couple of ways to do that. Uh, one way is to force them to stop thinking reflexively. That is, the, the psychologist Daniel Kahneman, uh, who wrote, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1992, wrote a book called Thinking Slow and Fast. What we do almost all the time is think fast. We think automatically, emotionally, uh, uh, based with our on our, with our guts. We go with our guts. Right. And by and large, we're right to do so. We are able to get up in the morning, get to work, get our jobs done, and do a pretty good job. The problem with thinking fast is that when we do, we allow our subjective judgments, mm. our gut, to influence our decisions. Well, our gut is where all those stereotypes, all those biases are housed. And so when we think fast, when we evaluate people based on how well we get along with them or whether they fit in with the group or whether we think that they are natural leaders or some other cliche about um, their capacities. Mm -hmm. That's when we make biased decisions. And so we need to slow our thinking down. We need to find ways that force people when they make career affecting decisions to slow their thinking down, to think with their minds, not their guts, and to come up with a rational approach. Now, how do you do that? You don't do it by, again, just sort of telling people, slow down. You've got to find techniques that force people to do that. One of the most effective techniques is when you're making decisions of that sort, do it together. Do it with another person. Force yourself to explain to another person hmm. why you're going to make a decision. Have that other person make explain to you and then listen to that other person and then decide together. Because when we talk hmm. about our decisions, when we realize that someone else is judging our basis for making a decision, we do it much more carefully. Wow. Oh my goodness. I bet you've got a hundred techniques like that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe 110. Oh, that's really, that's a, this is a really exciting conversation because whether or not it has to do with men and women or it has to do with anything else, it's something we can all really, really benefit from. And I know just for myself, it's not something you, you know, cognitively think about, oh gosh, I should slow down my thinking and, and really, you know, run my thought process by somebody. That's really, that's really brilliant. It Thank works. You. It works on figuring out whether, um, uh, whether your what your kids ought to do uh, uh, do for dinner too. Frankly, <laughs> good point. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, here's uh, I kind of want to ask you guys a little bit about uh, relationships, both in the workplace and and how we can make those better. But one more question for you before I do that is. Just for men and women in general, 
for the, well, men and women, for the both of us, what can we do? What can we actively do to keep discrimination biased outside of the workplace, whether we're in leadership or, you know, have direct reports? What, what are some ways that we can have an eye out for that and do something about it without, you know, rocking the boat or stepping on anyone's toes unnecessarily? Well, it, it's interesting because one of the very first things that we've said is that information is powerful. And so one of the ways that we could keep discrimination out of the workplace is the same way that we can keep discrimination out of our neighborhoods, out of our communities, out of our families, which is to um, understand what the stereotypes are about other people. That there are stereotypes, for example, that women are supposed to be nice and kind and sweet. Yeah. Well, if I tell you I need you to do this by five o'clock, um, uh, your reaction might be, who does she think she is? <laughs> now, who is she telling me what to do? Uh, even if I'm your boss, it may turn out to be that way. And so one of the ways about dealing with this is to understand what the stereotypes are, to acknowledge that they have no relationship, no r reality with individual people. And that you start to evaluate each other on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And that's really a key way of dealing with relationships mm -hmm. across the board, frankly. Evaluating one-on-one. -on -one. Exactly. Give people a chance to show who they are as opposed to who you think they are because of certain characteristics that they might have. Wow. One, yeah. other, one other thought on this personal discrimination, we all have a tendency to shy away from difficult conversations with people with whom we think we disagree or with whom we actually disagree. We, dis we find it difficult to discuss race with people who are of a different race or a different ethnicity or a different political philosophy or a different take on uh, religion. So one of the key things that we try to address in It's Not You, The Workplace, is how important it is and techniques to be able to start and have uncomfortable, difficult conversations. Because until you can have those conversations, with the people with whom you are in fundamental disagreement, you're not going to end those. Yep. And that goes right to, that goes right to my next point of curiosity here. You shared one of those communicate, those communication tips with us, but um, obviously that's, that's a really big one. I mean, I think I hear across the board, communication's the issue. Communication's the issue, whether it's relationships or workplace. But how, you know, I mean, succeeding at work and succeeding in relationships, I would guess they're the same, rely so heavily on those communication techniques that, you know, maybe some people learn along the way, but for the most part are maybe brand new to a lot of us. Are there any more 
like that that you can share with us? Tips on just keeping stereotypes out for communicating? Absolutely. Um, our first our first book, Breaking Through Bias, um, focuses on all sorts of communication tips, and and there's different conversations that you have with yourself about uh, how are you going to deal with people who are difficult? How are you going to present yourself? Mm. But there's also uh, uh, nonverbal sort of the body language kinds of communications that we give to other people, ah. as well as the, the language, the, the words that we use, the phrases that we use, the tone of voice that we use. And so I'll give you an, uh, an, an obvious example. If you see somebody and you're trying to have a conversation and they've got their arms crossed over their sh- uh, chest. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so the, are, they, are, they actually, um, are they actually cold or are they actually, or are they actually distancing themselves from you? Hmm. What is it about what is it about them? It might be that they're cold and it may be that they don't mean anything negative. But very often when you talk to somebody and they've got distancing body language like that, then it makes you uncomfortable and then you can uh not present yourself the uh, with the best light because you're feeling awkward or uncomfortable. Wow. The other thing about that is to recognize that your goal in communication is to create an impression of yourself that you want another person to have. And that means that you've got to recognize that the way you communicate will affect the way you are perceived. Now, that's a sounds simple, but it's a complex notion that many women are very resistant to embrace. And they're Mm. resistant to embrace it because they are convinced that their basic authenticity is at stake, that they are a particular way, that they are who they are, and that's the only way they are, and Mm. people can take it or leave them be. Well... That's nonsense. We are all an amalgam of many kinds of different people. We have strengths, weaknesses. We have strong qualities. We have welcoming qualities. We have forceful qualities. We have uh, inviting, caring qualities. And what people need to do is realize that In their communication, they need to draw on those characteristics that will be most effective in those situations because their job in every situation is to achieve an objective that they have set for themselves. And that requires managing the impressions that other people have of them. Wow. Yeah, I love that. And, and actually going a step further there, um, which by the way, that sounds like a great practice. I'm going to try that. (laughs) Being a woman myself, I think about that, you know, I, what you said just right now absolutely resonated with me. I, 
was thinking, you know, yeah, I just, I am who I am. I always have to present that authentically, but you're so right. There's, you know, when I'm approaching someone in leadership much older than me, there's this mentality of, well, they're going to know that I'm not at their same level. And you're right. There's so many other characteristics that I could draw from to present myself in a different way. And yeah, that sounds like a great practice. Well, I, 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 I often liken it to um, when you get up in the morning, you get dressed knowing that you're going to go to an important meeting or you're going to go yes. to the beach or you're going to go to a black tie dinner or you're going to and you have a closet full of clothes and you take out the clothes that you're going to wear for the events that you're expecting for that day. Well, we have those behaviors are in our closet as well, and we can pull out the right one for the occasion. I love that. Yep. And I definitely uh, have thought through days where mentors of my own have said to me, you know, when you go to a meeting like that, you just got to wear a black suit with red and <laughs> practice right, those right, power right. poses. Exactly. It does make a difference. That's it's good. Well, taking it another step deeper into what you guys were just talking about, um, Al, what you were mentioning is uh, in regards to presenting yourself a certain way. So women on women, uh, I love how you guys talk about this. So could you explain the misconception that you've been talking about and writing about in regards to, you know, fundamentally women are hostile toward other women. Can you explain that and and go in a little deeper? Well, Sure. There is a cottage industry out there that is preaching to women that there is something about them that has predisposed them or other women to be hostile to them or them to be hostile to other women, that they are um, antagonistic or competitive or mean that they have been conditioned that way by evolution or socialization or internalization of uh, misogyny. But in fact, we don't think that's true. We find no empirical evidence that women are more hostile to women than men are to men or that women are more Uh, antagonistic with other women or competitive with other women than men are with men. What we do find, however, is that women are far more concerned about their relationships with other women than men are with other men. Uh, That may be a socialization issue, but women think about, want to have good relationships with other women and are bothered when they don't. And that's what they are concerned about. Hmm. And so what we are trying to figure out, what we think we have figured out, is that the reason that women find those relationships so difficult is not because they are, not because there is something about them, but because there is something about the environments within which they find themselves that forces them into situations that create conflicts, competitions, difficulties, tensions Mm -hmm. with other women. So it's the workplace, not women being inherently nasty. 
Yes. I know you guys have, uh, that, that's the book that you said was just at the publisher right now. It's right. not you, it's the workplace? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a great one for us to pay attention to. And then you're, you've also written um, Breaking Through Bias. Do you have other books out there that, um, that you would recommend to us, both your own or you know, even articles that you've written uh, yourselves or read? Well, we we did um, we did write an article uh, about um, uh, s- sexual harassment in the office um, for Harvard Business Review, and uh, what we did is we the studies show that organizations that have gender bias, organizations that allow f- people to be uncivil to each other, <laughs> tend to have more harassment than organizations that don't tolerate that, that it's really a spectrum of behaviors. And so we have an article in the Harvard Business Review where we say that this is the situation and that organizations, if they want to do a better job of dealing with harassment, really need to be asking their their work, their, their employees, uh, what they think about the um, uh, gender bias, the incivility, as well as the harassment, and that people should ask these questions and then actually pay attention to it and try to make mm. changes. So that if if you if you include your employees in these sorts of of um, uh, fact finding, that you can actually make a big difference. The the important point there, I think, uh, that Andy touched on, is that organizations that don't come down hard on the apparently innocent stuff, the locker room talk, the mm-hmm. off-color jokes, the, uh, the, the discrimination in who takes whom to lunch, that's a sign that there's something fundamentally amiss in the workplace. And it's those organizations that are prone to sexual harassment, not the organizations in which there is mutual respect for each other, uh, whether you are of a different gender or race or ethnicity or religion. Wow. What what do you guys think about... I know it depends on the organization and the values of that organization, but what do you guys think about um, men mentoring women and vice versa? Well, first of all, we think that it's it's critically important and that it's wonderful that women can have women mentors, but they also need men to mentor them. And so with the Me Too movement, what's been happening is some men who didn't really want to mentor women anyway are using that as an excuse to say, there's nothing in it for me. I'm not going to stick my neck out. Mm. Uh, But then there's also well-meaning and good-intentioned men who are afraid about being somehow painted with an inappropriate brush. And so for those men, organizations need to be requiring mentoring so that the men are mentoring women not just because they're nice guys or good good leaders but because they're being told that they should and so that's another way that policies can actually help 
make sure that women get a fair shake with the mentoring. Because if men can pull back and not support and mentor women, then it's as hard as it is for women now, it's going to be even harder. Wow. Yeah, I love that perspective. That's brilliant. Well, let's, um, let's move into the power section here. Um, is there a quote that you guys live by or a saying that you guys have found value in? Um, there's a wonderful book that was written by um, uh, Anne Lamont, and it's called Bird by Bird. And when the story is, it's, a, it's about writing, being a writer, but the, the book's name comes from a story of her brother when he was, um, when she was a little girl, her older brother had an assignment in school that he had to write a report on all of the birds in North America. And he had this assignment for the whole semester and it's due Monday. And on Sunday night, he's sitting at the kitchen table um, and he hasn't started to write it yet. And his father pats him on the shoulder and says to him, because he's overwhelmed and says to him, bird by bird, buddy, let's just do it bird by bird. And that became a mantra in our family when our daughter was little, Mm. which is that if you feel overwhelmed and you just don't know what you're going to do. You just have to take it apart bird by bird. And so um, that's uh, something that we sort of live by in our family. I love that. Bird by bird. The other thing we try to live by is that when there's a crisis, one person says to the other, you can't be part of the problem. You need to be part of the solution so that people pull back from their despair, from their sense that this is overwhelming, to recognizing that their responsibility is to do something about it. Mm. Wow. Note taken. Thank you. Well, maybe you just said it, but... um, if you could leave the world with a golden nugget, one last message that everyone would hear, what would that be? I would say that perfection is overrated. <laughs> that if we strive for perfection, then we become frozen and we're not prepared to take the kind of risks that we need to. So we need to give ourselves permission to fail. And that's all tied in with the view that perfection is overrated. I guess I would say something similar that, in fact, we need to recognize that we need small wins, that we advance not by making radical changes, but by advancing a little bit at a time. And that every little bit towards an identifiable goal is what we're after. But when we think that what we've got to do is step out and make fundamental changes in our society, in our company, in our marriage, in our child's life, we're going to fail. It's little wins mm. that advance 
Red Sauce. Oh, I love that. That is absolutely such a great reminder. Well, how do we stay connected to you guys and how do we support you? Well, we would love to hear from uh, your um, uh, listeners. Uh, we, our website is andyandale.com and, I, and it's www.andy, A-N-D-I-E, and A-N-D-A-L-A-L. Andyandale.com, and we'd love to hear people's thoughts about. Uh, we have blo- we have our blogs posted there, and we have other resources, and so we would love people to get involved in the conversation. People can sign up for our newsletter there as well. <laughs> Brilliant! I love it. Oh, you guys have been so wonderful to talk with. I have one more question for you, and then and then I'll let you go. But. Uh, what when you hear the phrase rise up for you what comes to mind instinctively that we all can do better that what we have within us is more than we are right now and that mm-hmm. by focusing on what i call those little wins we can be better than we are today. I love that. Anything for you, Andy, that comes to mind or is that? Well, that pretty, that, that pretty much says it, but yeah. um, uh, just the, the, the sense of the action of actually doing something. So yes. rising up uh, is actually the sense of um, accomplishing something for yourself. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much. Those are really wonderful words of wisdom that all of us can learn from. I'm so glad our audience got exposed to you guys tonight. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Well, we're very glad to be part of it. And um, uh, thank you for including us. Yes. Thank you very much for the conversation. We've enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. We'll have to do this again sometime. (laughs) Okay. Well, you guys have a good night and we'll look forward to connecting with you soon. Thank you. Good okay. night now. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Rise Up For You podcast series. We're here to serve you and inspire you to become your best self so that you can live a life that you are proud of. If you haven't already, head over to our website, riseupforyou.com and explore through all that we have to offer. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there for exclusive materials sent to you weekly and also subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and any other major podcast channel. Join us for our next episode, but until we meet again, rise up for you, be better today than yesterday, and prepare for a greater you tomorrow. Tomorrow.